always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband and lightning fast speeds. See sky.ie for more. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Connor Pope. Today, America's school shooters, why do they do it? When the news broke of a deadly school shooting, this time in Uvalde, Texas, Robin Kowalski from South Carolina thought about her own kids. They're out of K-12 through now, and I, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm glad. K-12 through means kindergarten to 12th grade. So they're going to be ages 5 through age 18. They went to a, a school that I felt they were relatively safe at, but who knows? You know, you never a parent never knows when they leave their kids at school. Like most Americans, Robin supports stricter laws on the availability of guns in America. If the guns weren't available, the shootings wouldn't happen. Having said that, though, I don't think it's just the presence of the guns. It's a factor, not not the sole factor. Robin is a professor of psychology at Clemson University, and she's researched school shooters and what motivates them. For her, guns are one part of the problem. The other part is that too many American children grow up feeling like they don't matter. These people who feel like they have nothing to lose, they, they have nothing to lose, um, are going to go in with the full intent that, you know, it's OK in their own minds if they don't come out alive. Later on in the podcast, I'll talk to Professor Kowalski about why shooters do it and what can be done about it. But first, Irish Times Washington correspondent Martin Wall was in Uvalde, Texas last week where the shock and the pain quickly turned to anger over how local police acted as 18-year-old Salvador Ramos murdered 21 people in an elementary school. Martin, it emerged this weekend that the US Department of Justice in Washington is to establish an investigation into how police acted in response to the mass shooting in this primary school in southern Texas. Why does the DOJ believe an investigation is necessary and what are the key questions that it wants to have answered? Well, the Department of Justice investigation was initiated following a request from the mayor of Uvalde, a man called Don McLaughlin. This came about as a result of a dramatic announcement by the Texas Public Safety Authorities at a dramatic press conference last Friday, where they, they answered, finally answered questions that were unanswered for days, that lev- driven a level of suspicion about what had really gone on. Our goal today is to provide the parents, the community of Uvalde, the public, as much information as we can on where we are on the investigation. And basically what had happened was the shooter attacked the school, got into the school. There were small children, nine, ten-year-old children, trapped in the classroom with the gunman. And 19 police officers at one stage were outside the door and they did not enter the classroom until specialist backup arrived. 11.37, there was more gunfire. Another 16 rounds was fired at 11.37. And 16 seconds, 11.38, 11.40, 11.44. And the safety doctrine that was put in place among many police forces in America, and particularly in Texas, after we all remember the Columbine shooting and the movie about it, after that, policing tactics changed in America. And basically what it is now is... If there was an active shooter, police go in straight away. Police officers line up, they stack up, they start to shoot and they keep shooting until the suspect is dead. That's what they do. So you throw officers at the issue until the suspect is actually no longer a threat. That did not happen. They waited until a specialist tactical unit. They waited for that. And in the interim, for an hour, there were young children trapped in a classroom with a gunman. 11.50... 
They breached the door using keys that they're able to get from the janitor because both doors were locked. Though both of the classrooms that he shot into were locked when officers arrived. There were heart-wrenching details of phone calls being made by nine and ten-year-old children to the emergency services saying that there is, we're here with this gunman, he's in the room, please send the police, when the police were actually outside the door. The caller identified, I'll not say her name, but she was in room 112, called 911 at 12.03. The duration of the call was one minute and 23 seconds. She identified herself and whispered, she's in room 112. At 12.10, she called back in room 12, advised her multiple dead. 12.13, again, she called on the phone. Again, at 12.16, she called back and said there was eight to nine students alive. It emerged that the police had made a catastrophic error of judgment. And the commander on the ground who made that decision appeared to believe that he had time on his hands. He believed this wasn't said explicitly, but the, the clear implication was, was that he believed that everybody in the classroom was dead when they weren't. And it's, it's unclear at this point as to whether the police were outside the door for nearly an hour, as to whether any child died in that interim period while the police were outside the door. So I think that is what the Department of Justice is now going to investigate, is how the police handled this whole issue. There shouldn't be anybody here. Ideally, we've been able to finish for you know identify this guy as a suspect and address it before he even thought about attacking, you know, on the twenty fourth. What do we know about the events leading up to the shooting that allowed the perpetrator to gain access to the school? It seems there were a litany of errors made in the lead up to it. Absolutely. Uh, for example, we heard the other day is that the, the under the rules of safety in schools, and bear in mind that. Schools do drills on a regular basis in relation to school safeties about the potential gunman. Schools are supposed to be locked. The doors are supposed to be locked. It it emerged on Friday that a teacher had opened a back door to go and get a phone from her car and had propped the door open and left it open. That's for error number one. There was a, what they call a resource officer, essentially a security guard. He wasn't on the premises at the time of the, when the shooter arrived. He arrived shortly thereafter, but wasn't there at the actual time. And then there's the issue of the police arrival. The tutor was had the run of the school, essentially, or the classrooms for about 60 minutes before they finally broke down the door and shot him. The final moments of Salvador Ramos's life brings an avalanche of questions. The biggest were warning signs missed after the teen killed 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde. Did you notice that... He was growing disturbed. Was he becoming upset? Was he? He, he was very quiet. He, he was very quiet. What do we know about the teenager who committed these murders? The teenager is a man called Salvador Ramos. He, he turned eighteen in mid-May, I think, about the sixteenth of May. He bought a semi-automatic assault rifle on his eighteenth birthday. Two days later, he went back to the same shop and he bought another one, and he bought three hundred and seventy-five rounds of ammunition. When he arrived at the school, he had an excess of 1,600 rounds of ammunition. He would appear to have come from a... have a difficult family background. He lived with his grandmother. He appeared to be a loner. 
he didn't appear to have many friends. There are reports from some of people who were in his former classes that he did, he had a stutter. He was picked on. He was bullied. He seemed to have withdrawn into a virtual world of social media and chat rooms with people who he met online in a, in a virtual basis. And we know the perpetrator had put messages up on Facebook. Facebook quite quickly came along and said, oh, no, he didn't. It was a private message to a third party. That third party turned out to be a 15-year-old girl in Frankfurt in Germany that he had been talking to online and in virtual chat rooms for several weeks. And she got the impression that he was, uh, that there was a dark part to his personality. She made reference in an interview with American media to a phrase that he used to throw dead cats at people's homes. So the issue with the, the message that he gave to this uh, 15-year-old girl in, in Germany was was that there, had, there seemed to indicate there had been some issue with the grandmother. He then said he was going to shoot the grandmother, which he did. He then took the grandmother's uh, uh, pickup truck and drove it to the school, crashed the car outside the school. Across from the school, uh, just with the geography of the, of the area, the school is in a residential area. There are a lot of small side roads and a lot of single-storey houses all along each of the roads. But across from the back of the school, there is a funeral home. And there were two men working in the funeral home. And when they heard that this truck crash into a ditch, they ran out because they thought there'd been a road accident. And they saw a individual climbing out of the passenger side of the of the, the truck with a rifle and a backpack, essentially. Mm. And he opened fire on the two men. So the two men managed to make it back to their um, shop. He then scaled a fence and would appear to have opened fire at the windows of the school as he walked along the side of the school and then found the open door that had been left propped open by the teacher who had gone out to get a, get a phone out of her car and entered the school. So it does appear to be a tragedy that was potentially exacerbated by a whole series of errors, mistakes, coincidences, etc. And finally, Martin, you've spent almost a week in the town of Uvalde. Has it started to come to terms in so far as it can come to terms with the terrible events of last Tuesday? And has it started to bury the victims of the shooting? Um, on the second point, the burials will start this week and they will run for the guts of 10 days as far as I'm, as I'm, as I'm aware up until the, the early part of June. Uh, is, is it recovering? No, I do not think so. I think it'll take potentially generations for this town to recover. You know, the, the issue in relation to one of the school teachers who died, her husband, while arranging the funeral, suffered a heart attack and also died. So that fam- that's a family that's left now with no mother or no father within a week. This is a town that will take decades to recover because apart from the people who have died and the families who are grieving, the impact that this will have, I will suspect, on other children who are in the school. There are extraordinary interviews that have taken place of children in the school who, how it affected them, where they say that all my friends are dead. The survivor grief on that will be immense. And I suspect that will run for for years and years and years. The media caravans will roll out of town in a few days. The politicians at national level will, will will not be present. But this will this will take um, generations, I think, for this town to put this in so, any way behind them if they ever do. 
Coming up, why do shooters do it? And do politicians really mean it when they talk about tackling mental health problems? Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Professor Robin Kowalski, let's start with a basic question. Just how common are school shootings in the United States? So how common they are really depends on what source you read. There's different platforms that keep track of the school shootings, but they also define those shootings differently. It's not that one's any more accurate than the other, but, you know, some define anybody just brandishing a gun as that's a school shooting. In our research, we take a more conservative criterion of, you know, the shooter has to be a current or former student. Somebody has to be killed or injured. So, you know, if you do that, then that's going to be that's going to reduce the number of shootings significantly. I did look at, look up one site in particular, knowing what you were going to ask, and um, it's Education Week, and it, they chart each shooting as it occurs. And they said that there'd been uh, 27 school shootings this year and 119 since 2018. 27 this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the access to firearms, because as you say, a lot of these children are, can't legally buy the firearms. It seems like this is an almost uniquely US problem. And is it largely or significantly to do with the proliferation of firearms across the US? Or is that just an element of of the reason behind these shootings? I think it's an element of it. Um, You know, obviously the shootings wouldn't occur if the guns weren't available. Yeah. You've got to have the guns in order to have the shootings. You know, there's violence that takes place with, you know, knives and things like that. Um, so it might take a different form, but there's a distancing that occurs with guns. You know, you can, you know, if you're going to shoot somebody, you're, you don't have to be right mm. on that person to do so. With knives, you've got to be right next to somebody. So I think that almost makes the, the guns make it easier because you can, you know, physically distance yourself from up with someone. You can also, if, if, someone is so inclined, they can also kill more people at one time. So, but you've got to have the guns, you've got to have the guns in order for the shootings to take place. But mm. I think it is a factor. I don't think it's just the presence of the guns, because again, it's like the other factors that we were talking about. There's plenty of people who have guns who don't do bad things with them. They use them for hunting or some other purposes. So I, I think it's just, it's a factor, not not the sole factor. Now you've researched and written on this subject. Who is carrying out these shootings? Do the perpetrators have things in common with each other? So I don't want to run the risk of profiling. I can tell you based on the research that we've done where we coded a lot of these shootings. So they're primarily male. They're primarily white males. Um, They're primarily white heterosexual males. Back in 2003, I published a study with some co-authors looking at the shootings that had occurred up to that point. And, you know, the prevalence has increased, so there weren't as many back then. Mm. And we came up with five antecedent conditions, a long-term history of rejection, most often bullying, an acute rejection experience, like they had recently broken up with a romantic partner, um, a history of psychological problems, 
a fascination with guns and explosives, and then a fascination with death and violence. And that often took the form of being fascinated with um, prior shootings that had occurred at, at other schools. It was probably about 2017. We decided, you know, since there have been so many shootings that had occurred since that time, we decided to start looking at whether those criteria still held. Most of the shootings that had occurred since that time, most of the K-12 shootings that had occurred since that time, some number of those criteria were present. And, and you said that you wanted to steer away from profiling. Why do you think there is a danger when it comes to profiling potential perpetrators? Well, there's so many people who are bullied, the vast majority of people who are bullied who don't go on to become school shooters. If I'm an adolescent and I see one of my you know, schoolmates who has you know, mental health issues or who's being bullied, you, know, you don't want somebody to immediately think, oh, that, that person is going to become a school shooter because probabilistically that's not true. It seems to be that there's sort of among those who go on to become school shooters, there's really like a perfect storm you know, there have to be guns maybe in the house or maybe they get them from, you know, a friend who is older. So there have to be other factors present that are sort of the tipping point for the shoot, shooting to actually occur. Now, as part of your research, you, you pinpointed certain things that, that certain commonalities in interests that, that some of the perpetrators had. One of the things that struck me was th there was a fascination with Columbine. Yes, yes. So many of them have that. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think it fits with that criteria of the fascination with death and violence. There's this almost empowering factor from wanting to emulate those previous, particularly Columbine. But, you know, Columbine was really the first big um, shooting that occurred and it, it, it drew so much attention. Now, police have been interviewing the family members of the two teenagers responsible for the shooting. We now know that one of them, Eric Harris, also posted violent lyrics and recipes for pipe bombs on the internet. And his final entry in an AOL chat room, which was posted yesterday morning at 8.41, read, today is my last day on earth. Rob. Disturbing. Thank you. And I think in some cases, the shooters, they they want that same kind of recognition. Um, you know, a lot of media don't even use the names of the shooters anymore because they don't want to give that same kind of attention. Um, so, you know, and it's a bit it's a big debate. Should we use their name? Should we not? But I but I think from a from their own personal perspective, in the minds of some of them, they want to kind of go out in a blaze of glory, just like the Columbine shooters did. And you mentioned rejection as playing a key role in the backstories of a lot of the people that you've done research on. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Because rejection is, is part of life. I mean, we've all had our hearts broken. We've all been rejected by people. A lot of people will have experienced bullying. So what's the trigger, for want of a, a better word, because that's a terrible word to use, but like what causes these people to move from dealing with rejection like we all do to doing these terrible, terrible acts? Yeah, that's that's a, such a great question because I do think that's a key factor in it. I think the rejection is is one of the most critical factors, and you know, there's that long term history of rejection, and there's the acute rejection experience. You know, and you're right. Almost, um, it would be a rare person who has not experienced some form of rejection. Um, you know, whether a romantic breakup or having ha having been bullied or you know having lost a job or something of that form. And, and we know that in mass shootings among adults, you know. Um, having been fired from a job is, is one of the um, facilitating factors. So I think, again, I think it's sort of a perfect storm with some of the other factors. You know, some people can cope with that better than others. Some people have other support 
social support available. So maybe if I'm, you know, bullied, if I'm an adolescent and I'm bullied, but I have a really supportive family, then I, that helps me buffer the effects of the bullying. But, you know, there are, there are also some, a lot of young people who don't have those additional support mechanisms in place to buffer the effects effects of having been rejected in another context. And, you know, we also do, do research on psychological mattering, you know, how, making other people feel important or significant. And I really think that's a key element. You know, if you, even, you know, again, no one's immune from being rejected or, or bullied or you know, having their heart broken. But if they feel like they matter in some other context, that's that buffering effect. And it it really takes so little to make somebody feel like they matter. And I feel like to the degree that, you know, we're never going to eliminate bullying, but, you know, some schools are trying to develop programs, for example, that facilitate mattering. And I think to the degree that we can deal with some of the core issues, like to the degree that we can develop programs facilitating mattering and, um, you know, trying to make um, eliminate anti-mattering and reduce bullying and, um, you know, focus on mental health issues, I think then the, the, the prevalence of school shootings will decrease. Why are there so many children in America who feel like they don't matter? Is that also a particularly American problem? Yeah, I think we I think the United States is just such an individualistic culture. Um, you know, I think people are just sort of out for themselves and, you know, they just, they, it's becomes this sort of singular focus where, you know, we just, we, we live our lives and sort of don't pay attention to how our own actions can hurt other people, um, purposefully or not, you know, and, and other people just get left by the wayside. And, you know, you've got, so, like in schools, you've just got so many kids who are marginalized. And once they're marginalized, you know, they're the, they're the kids who are eating lunch by themselves. Um, well, then they become the weirdos, you know, and I'm not saying that they really are, but that's how they're perceived by other kids. And well, then, then nobody wants to sit with the weirdo. So it just, it just, beca- it just snowballs. It becomes just a vicious cycle. And, you know, then they start dressing differently. I mean, it just, it's just, the, the problem just compounds itself. And the more isolated, the more ostracized you are, that's going to compound any mental health issues. Even if they weren't there, it's going to create its own mental health issues. So it, it, it's just a, yeah, it's just a vicious cycle. But if even, like I said earlier, if even one person would reach out to the, that kid or those kids, then, you know, it would make a substantial difference. When you look for solutions or when you look for ways to, to, to stop this happening, people suggest, you know, armed police outside all schools or arming the teachers or, or locking down schools from nine to three or nine to four or whatever might happen. Does your research point to any different solutions that might be out there to try and reduce the prevalence of school shootings? Because that ultimately, I would imagine, is the aim of your research. It's not just a casual thing to see what's going on. It's to try and come up with solutions and and ways to address the problem. Yes, because you make a good point, like, you know, with lockdown drills, for example, and I'm not saying that lockdown drills shouldn't exist, but, you know, among elementary school age children, for example, there's plenty of evidence to show that they increase fear. Among older children, you know, the school shooter, as, as we've talked about in many cases, is present in the school. So they, the lockdown drill is teaching them 
what mechanisms the school is going to use to try to prevent school shootings. So that's not really going to be that helpful. So, so yeah, one of the factors that we recommend is really focusing on school climate, um, you know, creating a more positive school climate. And again, it goes back to the mattering where, you know, the young people are all, all made to feel like they are important and they're significant in that environment, um, reducing the, the prevalence with which bullying occurs, you know, making children feel like they have um, not just a safe environment from, in terms of being protected from school shootings, but a safe environment in terms of, you know, they are um, they are valued in that school setting um, because it, it usually it really only takes one person, one other person, to make somebody feel like they are important or valued. And so, for those kids that don't have a even a really supportive family environment, you know, if they know that they can go to school and have a peer or you know um, a teacher or an administrator or somebody that you know cares about them, then that person is, is less likely to go on and become a school shooter. The other thing that we talk about, too, is paying attention to warning signs. Many school shooters, they call it leakage. They disclose that they're going to engage in the school shooting. It may be through a post on social media. It may be telling a friend, hey, you know, don't come to school on Thursday. Um, you know, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. But, you know, among young people in particular, there's a code of silence or they think that that person is joking. Uh, you know, well, they, they wouldn't really do that. But, you know, people who post pictures of themselves with guns, um, you know, on social media, that's, that's not normal. Um, so, you know, if you see that, then you need to say something about it. Um, because it, you know, it not only is going to save other people and potentially save other people in that environment, but it could also help protect the shooter, him or herself. Over the last 20 years, it's just got worse and worse and worse. Like, is there any prospect that we might see a decline in the number of shootings that take place in, in, in children's schools in, in the US? And is there any prospect that we might live in a world where kids going to elementary school don't have to be afraid for their lives? Do I think that we can find a time when the number of school shootings will decrease? Yes, I think that's possible. Um, but I think that we've got to take some measures. You know, I, I don't think it's just in the United States at all, you know, so much of it becomes politicized and it becomes a gun control debate. You know, I think there should be gun regulation. That's just my personal opinion. But I think that deflects attention from some of the other key issues, you know, like focusing on you know, the mental health of, of young people and focusing on helping kids deal with rejection and focusing on reducing the frequency with which bullying occurs and, you know, trying to make feel, kids feel like they matter. I think there's so many other issues that underlie this besides just gun control. And I think that politicizing it is deflecting attention away from the core issues. And I think until we focus on those key core issues, we're not going to see any real improvement in the rates with which it occurs. Martin Wall, to briefly go back to the issue of gun control, which has dominated the political side of this tragedy since it happened. Has Uvalde done anything to move the dial to bring the United States any closer to stricter gun control laws? So there are talks going on about things that many people in Ireland would look at and say it's common sense. Things that they call red flag laws, that if you're seen to be a danger, a mm. potential danger to society or to yourself, that you should not have access to, to guns in many parts of America, including here in Texas. You cannot go into a bar to buy a beer until you're 21, but you can go into a gun store and buy an automatic rifle or a semi-automatic rifle at 18. Is that right? The other argument is of Republicans is, is that the vast, 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 vast number of Americans who own guns are completely law-abiding. And should they be impacted because of the actions of a small number of um, 
people who they who they completely uh, point to and say the real issue is mental health issue. Well, not long after a young gunman murdered 21 people inside a Texas elementary school, Governor Greg Abbott pinned blame for the massacre on mental health. We, we have a problem with mental health illness in this community. The magnitude of the mental health challenges that they are facing in the community and the need for more mental health support in this region. Now, the problem on the other side is, is that the people who claim there are mental health issues do not support, in many cases, putting money into the provision of mental health services either. And we had a situation in Texas where um, the governor, who pointed to the issue of mental health issues in this case and other cases, uh, cut the mental health budget by about $200 million last year. Robin, you said at the outset that these shootings wouldn't happen without guns. But you've made the point that the mental health and well-being of the children is important too. Republican politicians who are opposed to gun control make the same point. And in this latest case, they've been calling again for something to be done about mental health problems. What do you think about those comments? That's a great question. Um, so I'm not a Republican. Um, so <laughs> so that, that, that's probably going to bias my answer. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of lip service going into that. Um, let, let's see it. You know, if you want to give more attention to the mental health, let's see it. And I don't I don't see it. It's a great idea, you know, and I'm all in favor of it and made that point earlier. But, you know, if I, I need to see it, and I need to see it implemented in the schools. I need to see it implemented in the communities. And, you know, they can they can publicize that and, you know, promote mental health and let's have mental health awareness day. And but. You know, saying that, you know, actions speak far louder than words. So I just haven't, I haven't seen it. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. We'll be back on Friday.